The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Bruce Blumberg. He has been conducting pioneering research in endocrinology and developmental biology for more than 30 years. He is a professor in the Departments of Developmental and Cell Biology, Pharmaceutical Sciences, and Biomedical Engineering at the University of California, Irvine. He studies the biology of hormonally active compounds in the diet and our environment and how they affect our fat metabolism. I heard Dr. Blumberg speak on several occasions. He most recently spoke at the Beyond Pesticide Forum in Irvine, California, and he is the author of a terrific book titled The Obesogen Effect, Why We Eat Less and Exercise More But Still Struggle to Lose Weight. Welcome, Dr. Blumberg. Thank you very much. Well, this is such an interesting and timely book, and I just got a piece of information from, I believe it was the Journal of the American Medical Association, confirming what you state in this book, that we are indeed exercising more, and we are indeed gaining more weight. Tell me how you became interested in this area of research, and I know you coined the term obesogen, so tell me how you got there. Well, it's kind of a long and convoluted story. As a developmental biologist, I was interested in molecules that could signal in the early embryo, that could pattern the early embryo, that could help to turn the featureless fertilized egg into individuals like you and me, and that we were obviously recognizably human, but yet we're quite different from each other. So I was fascinated by that whole process. And at the time I started my research into embryonic signaling molecules was 1988 or so as a postdoctoral fellow at UCLA and everyone in the world was studying growth factors and I didn't believe that those could be signaling molecules or couldn't be the kind of signaling molecules that I was interested in so I decided to study hormone receptor ligands so molecules small fat soluble molecules like estrogen or testosterone or or vitamin A that could diffuse through the embryo and do the patterning process so I got involved in looking for in matching hormones or molecules that could act like hormones to receptors that looked like hormone receptors that we didn't know what the hormones were. Those were called orphan receptors because they looked like receptors, but we didn't know what the hormones were. So those were orphans. During the course of that work, I learned how to separate mixtures and look for the activities in there. And then in about, I want to say it was 1996, I got a call from a guy named Dave Gardner, who's a professor here at UC Irvine, who I had known in the past. We worked together. On, I, I taught them some molecular biology techniques. Uh, and he was interested in this business of deformed frogs in Minnesota, which you may remember. It's kind of faded out of the news now. But as far as I know, the frogs are still there. Mm. So these were frogs with extra legs, missing legs, duplicated hind ends, very, very weird behavior. And Dave had the idea that this was due to a molecule related to vitamin A in the environment. 
I set out to fractionate pond water and, and find what was this molecule. We came very close, but we never actually purified it to the point where we could identify it. But that got me started on the field of studying molecules called endocrine disruptors, so molecules that in the environment that could disrupt these hormone receptors in our bodies. And at that time, the leaders in the world in that field were the Japanese, because I, you may or may not know that every five years or so, the Japanese government throws a huge amount of money into some project, hmm. just an outrageous amount of money for five years, and then it's gone. So during the late 90s, early 2000s, that field was endocrine disruption. So I was invited to many meetings in Japan and began to work with Japanese colleagues in trying to understand whether these endocrine-disrupting chemicals might behave differently in different organisms, in, for example, fish versus mice versus humans versus rats. Because we had another receptor that I discovered when I was at the Salk Institute that actually regulates the breakdown of these chemicals. So while studying 20 of these priority endocrine-disrupting chemicals, we found out that one of them, tributyltin, activated a receptor with the terrible name peroxisome proliferator-activated receptor Gamma, which is a fatty acid receptor that regulates the development of fat cells. Hmm. Once we identified that activity, there was nowhere else to go with it but to study whether chemicals could cause obesity. So it was kind of a fortuitous finding that led us into this whole new field. Hmm. And when we were writing the first paper about it, we asked ourselves, what should we call a molecule that we think makes animals fat? And it was obvious that molecule that should be called an obesogen. And I confess I didn't know that that wasn't a word at the time. I just thought these chemicals were obesogens, and we started using the word. Yeah, it makes sense. I think what is so remarkable about your book is that we are reminded that these compounds are ubiquitous in our environment. And they're hard to avoid, but in the second part of your book, you give us some good steps on how to avoid them. It's not every day we get to speak to a, a biologist. It's a real luxury. And I'm curious when we have studies that are done on frogs or on lab rats, can we make the correlation to human? Can we jump to the human species and say what we're seeing in frogs and what we're seeing in rats, we are also seeing in humans? It's an excellent question. So for the most part, that's true. It's not 100% true all the time, so there are occasions where a molecule might behave one way in a mouse and a different way in a human. In fact, we've studied some chemicals like that. But generally speaking, probably 95 to 98% of the time, the kind of effect that you see in an animal will predict a similar effect in humans. Hmm. Did you find the chemical that was affecting the frogs? We had a, an activity, so we knew what receptor it activated, but we couldn't purify it to homogeneity to, to determine the structure because... This was 15 years ago, and the chemistry just wasn't available to do that. If I started that project today, we could do it. Yeah. I'm always curious about deformities in animals in an environment, especially where there's a lot of agricultural chemicals. And I know mm -hmm. agricultural chemicals are just one of many endocrine-disrupting compounds, but... I'm always curious to know, you know, the children that play in these creeks and the water that gets into our tap through contaminated groundwater, how is that ultimately affecting 
our children, our future. And you actually mentioned someone in your book, the late Howard Byrne from UC Berkeley, who uses mm-hmm. the term fragile fetus. Fragile fetus, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk to our audience and let them know why certain stages of development leave us more susceptible to these compounds. Sure. So if you think about it, the parts of your body aren't all formed at the same time. The different organs don't all just pop into existence. What happens is there'll be an embryonic induction. One part of the embryo will signal to another and say, you should make mesoderm here. And that mesoderm gives rise to muscle and bone and lots of derivatives. So the sensitive windows are when these processes are happening. So a great example is retinoic acid, or you may know it by the name Retin-A. Retin-A is a very powerful drug that does a great job at preventing really disfiguring cystic acne. But the retinoic acid receptor is very involved in early development, especially in patterning the nervous system. So that if a woman or a fetus or a frog embryo or a fish embryo, it doesn't matter, is exposed to retinoic acid at a sensitive time in development, you have catastrophic birth defects. In frogs, you can have a missing head. Mm. You can have a single eye in the middle of the head, the, the proverbial cyclops. There's all kinds of horrible birth effects that happen. And in humans, the window of sensitivity is between the time the embryo is fertilized and a woman misses her first period. So before you know you're pregnant, the damage is done. Wow. The fetus is fragile but robust at the same time. So if the embryonic development in humans was super fragile, then we'd never get normal humans because it's such a complex process. Right. But at the same time, strong perturbations at specific times can give long-lasting effects. And not just birth defects, but reprogramming your metabolism to be different. Mm. And in our case, we've shown that can persist for at least four generations. Yeah, that's so frightening to think of early exposures and how these chemicals that we're just learning about now can affect generations that we may not even know ourselves. So I think your work is so important. And also from what you just said about the fragile fetus is what that tells me as a dietitian is that we need to target our public health efforts to the most vulnerable populations, young women who may not even expect to become pregnant, but who do, those are the people that we must do our best to protect, I think. Absolutely. I love to speak to obstetricians and gynecologists. I love to speak to pediatricians. I love to speak to dietitians because these are the fields that really impact early life. Right. And that is the most sensitive time period. Right. So I want to probably identify what some of the most common endocrine disruptors are in our environment so our audience knows what exactly we're talking about. So do you want to cover those? I can, but it's difficult to say what are the most common because no one is measuring the exposure to these chemicals. Mm. We, We have this fantasy that the government measures level, that they determine whether chemicals are safe or not, and then they measure levels of exposure to make sure we're not being exposed to hazardous levels. And they don't really do that. There's a very limited effort called the National Health and Nutrition Examination Study, and in that they study something like 220 or 250 chemicals. I can't remember the number. And that's a good thing, but the majority of these are antique chemicals. 
57 different dioxins and PCBs and chemicals to which we're not really exposed to very much. Mm. The chemicals that we are exposed to, like bisphenol A and phthalates and organotins and all manner of pesticides and fungicides and agrochemicals, glyphosate, for example, right, with all the controversy about that, you might think that they're measuring levels in humans and you know the levels are safe. And the fact is they don't measure it. Yeah. They guesstimate these by computer modeling. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think is interesting from my perspective is the kinds of, for lack of a better word, propaganda that we hear from the industry. For example, mm-hmm. I was just listening to a webinar that the Produce for Better Health Foundation put on, and the message to dietitians was, don't worry about the levels of mm-hmm. pesticide residues. You know, we're talking about parts per billion, parts per yep. trillion. The EPA is regulating and taking care uh, of us, that we're fear mongers if we raise concern. And yet from your book and from other pieces of investigation that I've looked at, these endocrine disruptors are indeed active at parts per billion and parts per trillion levels. Absolutely. And this propaganda, which is that that's exactly what it is, that you hear from big agribusiness and even from the EPA that dose makes the poison, the dose is very low, therefore you shouldn't worry, is an absolute lie. And the reason it's a lie is because they have never tested the doses at which people are exposed. Mm-hmm. The way that traditional toxicology works is you want to study the effect of a chemical, so you start at a really huge level, kills all the animals. And you go down, down, down from the dose, and you find a dose that only kills half the animals. Okay, that's good. And you keep going down and down and down until you find a dose that barely affects, that causes any obvious effect. And that's called the lowest observed adverse effect level. Then they start applying safety factors to that. And it's okay if the lowest observed adverse effect level or the no observed adverse effect level is one part per thousand, then we'll divide that number by 100 or 1,000 and we'll call that the allowable human exposure. Then they say, okay, job's done. And then they never go ahead and measure to what people are actually exposed. Hmm. Worse yet, the studies are all done by the companies that make the chemicals. The EPA doesn't do any such studies. Wow. And I'm sad to say and sad to remind you and your audience that industry has a very sad history in regulating the safety of their own products. And you hmm. have only to look at what we're seeing now with the GM ignition switches and the Takata airbags and... Volkswagen lying with their diesel and big tobacco, and the list goes on and on and on. Right. So I don't think it's a good idea to allow anyone who makes a product to be the only one that determines whether it's safe or not. It should be determined by some independent agency or organization or individual that has no financial interest in the outcome. It's the only sensible way to do it. Exactly. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. My guest is Dr. Bruce Blumberg. He is the author of The Obesogen Effect, Why We Eat Less and Exercise More But Still Struggle to Lose Weight. This brings me to this idea that we've always been taught as dietitians, you know, just tell your clients that the reason why we gain weight is because we're taking in more calories than we're burning. But as you make very clear in your book, we all behave differently. We all react differently to different elements in our environment. And you presented an interesting tidbit at the Beyond Pesticides Forum. You said that even wild animals today are fatter 
than those same animals decades ago. So we know something is in our environment that's contributing to our obesity. Exactly. The bigger, that study came from David Allison's lab. At the, he was then at the University of Alabama. And it was wild rats living in cities, in fact, that they showed were also getting fat. The bigger issue is that animals living in research colonies, rats, mice, four species of primates, those are animals we control what they eat and how much they eat. They're getting fat too, so why is that? Hmm. We didn't deliberately set out to make them fat. If anything, we want to keep them lean and healthy. They're getting fat at the same time. Yeah. And I have to tell you that animal feed uses the cheapest, lowest-grade food products that there are. Everything that's not suitable for human consumption goes into farm and research animals. Wow. Yeah, there are so many factors contributing to obesity, as you outline so beautifully in this book, and you give us real-life examples on how we can take control and eliminate some of our exposures to these chemicals, even if our parents and grandparents had been exposed. And the things that spoke to me in particular were things like fragrances, the phthalates, in everything, you know, all of these cosmetic products that we use, from shampoos to detergents to fragrances that we splash on our bodies, and then household cleaning products, as well as just the everyday foods that we put in our mouth, including water. And you recommend that we filter our water for the same reason that I mentioned earlier, that these chemicals get into our groundwater and therefore they get into our tap. That's a lot for a consumer to have to do, isn't it? It's true. So I tried to present the recommendations in the book in a, almost a hierarchical order. Do this first. And the first thing you have to do is take control of your diet. Yeah. If you don't do anything else, take control of your diet. Make your own food from fresh ingredients. I don't mean grow your own food. You don't have to have a farm, although that would be nice. Yeah. But go to the store, buy meats and fruits and vegetables and pasta and whatever, and make the food yourself so that you know what's in there. If that food is organic, so much the better. But just by making food from whole fresh ingredients, you've gotten a tremendous bonus in lower exposure to all manner of chemicals from agrochemicals on the food to preservatives of all kinds to emulsifiers to the packaging material. There's a, a huge number of chemicals that come in via processed food. Yeah. So if you just take control over the food, you've done the biggest thing that you can possibly do. Number two has to be, to the extent possible, get plastic out of your life. It's better for you. It's better for the environment. Don't store your food in plastic containers. Use glass bowls, stainless steel bowls, ceramic. Get plastic out of your life. If you do those two things, you've gotten a huge benefit already. Then if you want to do more, sure. There's lots of other things that you can and should do, but would it make sense to filter your water and still buy packaged food? Right. That wouldn't get you a very big benefit. Yeah. And so much is put in plastic these days. I was thinking of your describing tomato products. There are certain products that tend to leach some of these plasticizers out of plastic containers. And I'm thinking about the squeezable ketchup bottle. So much easier, right, than having to try to get it out of glass. I'm thinking of all the bottled water that's sold in this country. And you talk about bottled water. Something else that in my efforts to reduce plastic in my household, I certainly got rid of the plastic containers that I used to use. 
But I thought I was safe with my silicon spatulas and silicon mitts that I had. And you write that, no, actually, silicon is not free of endocrine-disrupting chemicals. In fact, it has the one that we work on, organotins. Yeah. So I wouldn't worry that much about silicone spatulas as I would about things like silicone baking sheets that you put cookies on in the oven and you and they're there for 20, 30 minutes at high temperature. I'd worry more about those. Right. And then there are the very popular non-stick pans. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I have to do a big public apology because I remember when I was working as a nutrition specialist at the University of Missouri, I had information from what I thought was a reputable source. I think it came from the FDA, which probably came from the manufacturer, telling mm-hmm. me that these coatings are just fine, but if they start to chip, that's when you want to get rid of the pan. And as I'm learning, well, it's not just the coating. It's also the communities in which these coatings are made and all of the hazards that the workers are exposed to. That's a huge scandal right now. Yes, with respect to nonstick pans, it's probably less important with the chipping than it is not to heat them too high. Mm. So chipping is not good. You don't want to eat the stuff, but the stuff is relatively inert. But if you heat it too hot, it decomposes. And then you're exposed to the monomers of those polymers, which are not so nice. Right. Well, I also remember when, gosh, We've probably been in our professions for the same amount of time, a little over 30 years. And so we both went through this period of time where antibacterials were so popular. Mm -hmm. And you have a section in here. Yeah, right. They're still in our environment, although I think to a lesser degree. But you couldn't even buy liquid soap that didn't have an antibacterial in it. What's so bad about them? The chemical that's in there, the antibacterial chemical triclosan, Surprisingly, is I think the only chemical that's been banned for being an endocrine disruptor, shockingly. As far as I know, it's a, as endocrine disruptors go, it's a mild one. So it isn't the worst one by far, but I, it's probably the FDA that has made it be taken out of products. Mm-hmm. And there is this issue of, you know, when you put antibacterial chemicals into the environment, whether they're chemicals like triclosan or whether they're antibiotics at low doses, you create resistant bacteria, which is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest problem comes from agriculture, but generating bacteria and viruses and mold that are resistant to the agents that are supposed to kill them is definitely a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Well, your book does a terrific job in going through the different compounds. I pulled a few out, but I really want to put the ball in your court. You know, we just have four or five minutes left. I want to make sure that you've put this beautiful work together to help readers avoid these damaging compounds. What do you hope the reader takes away from this book? I hope that the readers take several messages away from this book. The first is that your health is largely under your control, not anyone else's control. The government is not protecting you except from being poisoned. Right. The chances are very good that you can walk safely down the street, even walk safely next to a farm, and there isn't anything in there that's going to make you drop dead in your tracks. But that's all they're really protecting you from. No one is protecting you from chronic long-term injury. It's up to you to protect yourself. 
With respect to people who are overweight or obese, I would say that it's very likely that you're that way because your metabolism is different than that of your very thin friend who can eat a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We'd like to all be able to eat as much as we can and still stay beautiful like the the models we see on, on television and in print. But the reality is, if you're someone who has what we call a thrifty phenotype, who stores more of the calories you consume than you burn, that's a good thing. Think how much you could reduce your food bill right? if you didn't have to eat as much. And you don't have to eat as much. So while it's definitely the case that obesity is not 100% about calories in, calories out, if you want to not be obese, you have to modify your lifestyle permanently. Any diet you can imagine will work as long as you're on that diet. And as soon as you stop, you'll go back to the weight you were before unless you change your way of living. Richard Simmons was a goofy guy who used to have uh, these right. television shows. And you say, you can't diet. You have to live it. Yeah. He was right. You have to change the way that you live if you want to change the way you look and feel. Right. And it's up to us to do that. Yeah. But one of the things that you said during your webinar that I thought was so important was that modern living means living with chemicals. And what I love about this book is that you've helped us see ways that we can eliminate or reduce our exposure to some of the more offensive chemicals. For Mm -hmm. example, you give us a great chart of which plastics are the biggest offenders. And so we can look at that little code on the bottom of our plastics and say, whoa, this one is especially harmful. And so I think you give us some very good tips on how to live with reduced exposure to these kinds of harmful chemicals, but to recognize that they are indeed all around us. They are part of modern living. That's completely correct. So it is true that it's difficult to completely eliminate chemical exposure. So you could take the position, well, I can't eliminate it, so why should I try? I think that's too fatalistic and counterproductive. You can reduce your exposure substantially. And if you're a mom or you're pregnant or you have young kids at home or you're a young woman who may be pregnant, the benefit to you and your children and your descendants is really big if you reduce your exposure to chemicals. It's much less important for people our age. Right. Still, it's beneficial, but it's much more important to reduce those chemical exposures to the young, vulnerable parts of the population. Right. And, you know, for all the times I've ever visited a physician, I've never been asked these Mm -hmm. kinds of questions. And even with regard to certain medications, you know, how many people who are prescribed, say, an antidepressant or a diabetes drug are told that this drug may cause weight gain? Exactly. Yeah. So There's one that's an atypical antipsychotic called olanzapine that's actually widely used. That's something that they give to people who they're starting to prescribe it in addition to antidepressants now. And people will gain 10 kilograms a year on olanzapine therapy, so 20 pounds a year plus. Wow. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Dr. Blumberg, our time is up. But what I want our listeners to come away with from our interview is that this book is not only about the biology and the biochemistry behind these compounds, It is a fantastic tool to help us 
control our weight beyond the calories on our plate. So you talk about stress, you talk about noise, you talk about just living in a way where we can clean up our diets the best we can. So I want to thank you very much for this book and for being my guest. I need to close, and I just want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We have been speaking with Dr. Bruce Blumberg. He is the author of The Obesogen Effect, Why We Eat Less and Exercise More But Still Struggle to Lose Weight. This should be on the top 10 list for anybody's summer reading list, I think. I hope so. Thank you for being with me. You're welcome. 